If you have your Bibles with you this morning and you want to turn there, we'll be uh, taking some scripture out of the book of Exodus in chapter 20. And uh, this is, uh, I would hope, a pretty familiar chapter to most of you. And while you're finding that, also find uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And, uh, you know, in this day and time, I think there might be a level of hesitation amongst preachers nowadays to uh, preach on anything to do with the Ten Commandments. but the Ten Commandments have not been rendered uh, null and void or of no use or anything like that. But rather, uh, Jesus, when He came and He told them, He said, you think I'm trying to do away with the law? And He said, I'm not trying to do away with the law. He said, I am dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And uh, here in Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read down to about uh, verse 7, or down through verse 7. Uh, that you'll notice that all of this is in dealing with our relationship to God. And our relationship to God is to be maintained. It's not to just be taken for granted. And I I would imagine that everybody here at one time or another has felt taken for granted. Uh, Where that, you know, you've done a lot for somebody, helped somebody, or, uh, you know, worked behind the scenes a lot, and then don't really get any kind of credit or anything like that for it. And uh, really, all of these, uh, these first few commandments, essentially, they hearken back to the first one, which is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And uh, we may look around in this day and time, and we may say, Oh, that doesn't happen anymore, other than the pagans or uh, people you know, who have other religions or anything like that. But uh, idolatry is still very common. In fact, I would venture to say it's more common now than what it was then, it's just more insidious or more uh, or less obvious, I should say. So we'll start reading in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And it says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything, of anything that is in earth or in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Verse 6, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And so here in Exodus chapter 20, when that uh, Moses began to record this law, and this is the first instance of the law actually being written down, actually being dispensed to a group of people. And of course, these were the Hebrews. These were the children of Israel. They'd just come out of Egypt and uh, that God had begun to deal with them and that He'd laid down essentially the law. That's where that, uh, that phrase comes from is during this time when it was that God sent that law to them. And if you were to turn into the writings of Paul there in the book, 
book of Romans, uh, you would find that Paul said, yes, there was a dispensation of the law. Uh, he said, but the law's always been there. Uh, it was ingrained in the hearts of men uh, that there was a higher power, that there is a God. Uh, and the problem, I think, that happens here in the 21st century United States uh, is that we take God uh, and we compartmentalize Him uh, and we don't allow Him into other areas of our life uh, and, and, and then we don't turn everything over to Him. And so then we look and we say, well, God's up on this shelf if I need Him, but the rest of the time, I'm alright. And, and, and the problem is, is that we don't look around and say, you know what? Without Him, my heart won't continue beating. Without Him, I don't know what's going to happen next. That I have to turn it all over to Him. But you'll notice now that He said, His first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. And it makes me think about the writings of Paul when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and he told him there would come a time when they wouldn't endure sound doctrine, uh, uh, that they would heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears, uh, and their God would be their belly. It would be their desires and their lusts uh, and their things of the world. Uh, and I tell you, that's common nowadays, uh, where that it is that people won't spare a few moments uh, uh, to read the Word of God, uh, to spend time in prayer, uh, uh, to come out to the house of the Lord, uh, uh, that rather everything else is far more important. And yet it is. God even, even tells about a consequence there in verse 5. Uh, uh, and that consequence has more to do with idolatry than it does anything. Because if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that Israel, God was very patient with them right up until they fell into idolatry. Uh, and every time that judgment would come upon them, uh, it was usually preceded by idolatry. Uh, that they were turning away. They were worshiping other gods. Uh, that was why that God told them uh, uh, in the time of Joshua, he said, now when you go in to possess the land, uh, what you do is you drive all of them out. Uh, you don't let any of them stay with you uh, because they'll introduce your, their gods to you. Uh, your children will begin to worship their gods uh, and they'll lead you astray. And then when you bleed on over into the book of the Judges, you see that exact thing happening as though that God knew what would happen. And He told them, look, here's the consequence. And I tell you today, if God is not first in your life, something else is. If you don't put God first, something else is going to take that place. And anything other than God is ultimately bad for you. That it may be, you know, that, uh, and, and I've met people, and in this day and time, it, it boggles my mind, especially teaching there uh, in, in the Westmoreland area. And I've met parents who I'm telling you, if their kid's grade drops one tenth of a percentage point, they will be calling or messaging me. What's going on? What happened to their grade? Or they didn't make an A on this one little piddly assignment. And they're worried about this. And then when I meet some of them, I can tell they worship their children. And I can tell you this, I love my children, but I don't love them more than I love God. And in fact, the more I love God, the more I love my children. And the better father I'm able to be just the same as I love my wife. But I don't love her more than God. And my ability to love God makes me better able to love her as I ought to love her. That we shouldn't put anything before God. And it's real easy to have something in our life that distracts us from our relationship to God. And I can tell you what a bad relationship to God or what a weak relationship to God looks like. It's often devoid of prayer. 
Or when you do pray, it's just because that you really don't have anything else to do. You find yourself saying, well, I guess I could watch Netflix or pray. And you turn on Netflix. And you make a choice. And you may say, Brother Jeremiah, that's an oversimplification. But is it really when we put anything before God? Because I can tell you this, our prayer life with God, uh, uh, imagine if you did that to another person. If they sent you a message or sent word to you and said, when you get a chance, I need you to call me. It's urgent. And then when you finally run into them, just by happenstance, you didn't seek them out. And they said, why didn't you call me? And you look and say, you know, I was, I was watching funny cat videos on YouTube for hours. I was uh, mindlessly scrolling through Facebook, wasn't even, and I've caught myself doing that lots here, scrolling through, you're not even looking at anything. And imagine if you told another person that, and said, so essentially what you're looking at them and saying is, my relationship to you is really not that important to me. So then, let's apply it to our relationship to God. What do we put before God? Because our most valuable commodity, our most limited commodity, is our time. 86,400 seconds we have available to us every day. Now, of course, you take uh, essentially a third of that if you're getting the right amount of sleep, and you throw that aside, that leaves only two-thirds of that 86,400, and I can't do that math in my head, but that leaves a portion of it. And then of that portion, it's dominated by job. It's dominated by relationships. Uh, but how much of it is dedicated uh, to your relationship to the Most High God? Uh, because those commandments were rounded out with, uh, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Uh, and that's not just using His name as an explicative, uh, although you shouldn't do that either. Uh, but rather it's saying, Don't pack it around uselessly. Uh, don't treat it as something to be lightly cast aside. Uh, uh, but rather Rather hold it as most high uh, to where if it comes down between your relationship to another person and your relationship to God, you'll choose God and you won't even hesitate. And you don't do that. You don't get there without practice uh, and without putting the work in it. It's no different than if somebody was to come up and ask somebody who's married and say, uh, uh, you know, essentially make the appeal that Potiphar's wife made to Joseph. And Joseph, now Joseph was an unmarried man. He wasn't attached. He was a, a, a young man and, and virile. And, and he could have looked around and said, you know what, my ship has come in. But he said, I'll not do this thing and sin against God. Uh, and, and, and the act of adultery is a sin against God as well as against your spouse. But if your relationship is strong, that's not even tempting you would say, I'm going to stop you right there until you don't even start to ask me this. And I've counseled young people. And I've told them, you know, young people before they get married, and I've looked right at them and I've said, you know, a lot of times young men, especially when a woman starts showing him attention outside of the marriage, I said, he doesn't treat her the way that he should treat her. He should treat her no different than if she was somebody trying to break into your house and do your family harm. And I've asked young men before I asked them that question, I say, what would you do if you and your spouse-to-be were in the house together and you heard somebody break the window open and they were coming into your house uh, to do you harm, uh, to end your marriage by killing one of you? What would you do? How would you handle that? And I see it all over their face and I'm the same way. Nobody's going to come into my house 
and do my family harm without first laying me low to be able to do it. And then I tell them, then you take that same vigor and you apply it when somebody tries to enter into your marriage and destroy it. No different than our relationship to God. If somebody tries to get between you and your relationship to God, then it's not God that needs to go, but rather it's them. And Jesus said, I've not come to draw everybody together. He said, I've come to bring division. But the things He's going to divide you from are the things that you don't need to begin with. And obedience to God sometimes is very, very difficult. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's just living the life that you're already living. It's just maintaining. It's continuing on with the status quo. And I don't know about you all, but as I get older, I really like the status quo. When, when essentially there's no news, everything's okay, all quiet uh, uh, around the house. Boredom, the thing that we feared as children, as adults, I think we, we desire. But you see, sometimes God says, I need you to go and do this. And then our obedience to Him is a true telltale sign of the health of our relationship to Him. It's no different than, and, and you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot. There are things that, that Crystal gets upset about or that are really important to her that really aren't that important to me. Not that big of a deal to me, but they're a big deal to her. And so then I turn around and because they're a big deal to her, I make sure they're a big deal to me. Now, I've messed up lots uh, and, not, and not really thought about it in that regard. And it's caused an issue. But if it's important to God, if God lays it out for us to do, then we're supposed to do it and to listen to Him and to hearken to His voice. And if you turn with me now into the book of 1 Samuel, into the 15th chapter... You'll find now that Saul, a man who was anointed king over Israel, that we find him here, uh, that he receives a commandment from God. And this commandment harkens back to the time that we just read about. That not long, or not long before Exodus chapter 20, these Amalekites, uh, they came and they fought with Israel. You, I hope you remember the story. It's that Joshua goes down into the valley of Rephidim and he fights with them. And Moses is up on the hilltop above them with his hands raised up to God uh, and says that while Moses' hands are raised up to God, uh, that Israel wins. Uh, and when his hands begin to droop, because his arms get tired, Israel begins to lose. The importance of praise to God should never be dismissed. And then they were able to defeat the Amalekites and God said, I'm going to judge them, but not yet. And then here in 1 Samuel 15, we find that God has swung around to judgment on the Amalekites. And He decides to use Saul to do it. Saul is picked out and, and, and God tells Samuel, go and tell Saul to do this thing. And God's very specific in what He wants him to do. And we'll start reading at verse 1. It says, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou to the voice of the words of the Lord. And now here's where it comes the commandment. He says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they had and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, 
ox and sheep, camel and ass. That God literally tells him, end everything. Now, a lot of people, and I've encountered people, you know, be like, you mean to tell me, now that said to kill the babies. God said to do this and to kill everything. How can a righteous God do such things? Look, God has the power over life and death. And when His judgment falls, it's not up to us to question. God is sovereign and He'll kill whom He'll kill. And He'll allow to live whom He'll allow to live. We may question. We may not understand. But God has that right to judge. And He judged them completely. And you may ask, well, why? I mean, let's put ourselves in Saul's position. Say, well, God's delivered them into our hand. Why don't we get their stuff? Why don't we get to go there and kill all them? Because Saul's fine with that. He had no qualms about that. But all their livestock? Kill all of it? Do you remember what God told them to do to the city of Jericho? They sowed salt into the ground. So that nothing would grow. Utterly destroyed that city. Killed everybody except for Rahab the harlot and her family. Because she believed at the word of the Lord. But Saul is told to do this. And here's my reasoning on this. God told them to do it this way. Because then they would look around and they wouldn't say, you know, Israel isn't like everybody else. Because anybody else, they would do exactly that. They would come in and they would take the children and the women as slaves. They'd kill all the men. They'd take all their livestock. They'd occupy their city. They would take all their gold and silver and all of these things. And God said, but you're not like other people. You're my people who are called by my name. And God told Saul, you go out and you do this thing and utterly destroy them. So that maybe everybody around will look and say, you know what? We better not mess with Israel. Because God said, I will bless those that bless you, and I'll curse those that curse you. And so the order comes down to Saul, and it's not left open to interpretation. And church, believe me when I say this, there are things in this Bible that are not left open to interpretation. And the ones that aren't left open to interpretation are the the ones that we just read some of. They're in Exodus 20. When it says, Thou shalt not kill... That means no killing. Thou shalt not steal. No stealing. It's literally that plain. Thou shalt have no other gods before Him. What good does it do us if we run around and we refuse to steal and we refuse to kill or commit adultery? We may even have coveting under control, but we put everything else before God. Oh, we're a good person. And we've made our own little world a really good place to die and go to hell from. That's about all that we've accomplished in being good as a person. And Saul now, he goes and he executes the judgment of God. But as a guy who's done this before, Dad would tell me to do something. Wasn't standing right over me pointing and saying, do this, do that, do this. And inspecting after me the whole time. I did a halfway job. I don't know about you all, but I've also in my life before, I've told half of the truth. And half of the truth is a lie. Some people may say, well, I didn't lie. You withheld information. That's called a lie of omission. We try to dance on that line all the time. Oh, I, I, I got into that when I was contracting until the Lord rebuked me and rebuked me hard for that. You tell what you know and you speak the truth even if it will cost you. 
And so Saul now is told to do this. Uh, and notice what Saul does in verse 4. It says, And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. Job done. He might have said... Good job, guys. Good effort out there. We've done what God has told us to do. But then in the next verse it says, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. That right there meant he didn't execute the judgment of God. He took the king. Why would he do that? Oh, because it was really good to take that crowned king and have him as a slave. That really would show everybody else what kind of, how tough that Saul was. And this wasn't about Saul. It was about the Most High God. It was about the people in the area looking around and saying, their God, beside Him, there is no other. And so Saul takes the king. And it says in verse 4, or verse 8, sorry, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So he killed everybody except for the king. But it gets worse. Verse 9, but Saul... And the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. So they looked around and they said, well, I didn't do every little teeny tiny little thing, but I got the job done. When the Samuel, and we're not going to take time to read that, but when Samuel shows up, Saul's like, hey, Samuel, you see what we've done? Look how good we have, I mean, man, we have just whipped the Amalekites. We've defeated them soundly. We've won a great victory for God. Look how good we've done. But Samuel already knew because God tells him there in verse 11, he says, It repenteth me that I made Saul king. I'll read it there. Verse 11 said, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. Well, God, that seems awful harsh. I mean, he did basically everything. Why was Saul judged so harshly, you may ask? He's the leader. And you can find throughout the Old Testament, whenever anybody's a leader, whenever anybody has that power to wield over other people, that they'll listen to them and they cause them to sin, it's worse for the leader than it is the people beneath them. Just like in the military, if a man who is a bad battlefield commander takes people out on the battlefield and he does poorly and executes judgment poorly and gets all of them killed, it's his fault. Now I can't tell you how often nowadays that people look around and they don't want to be accountable for their actions. And that's fine. And society may not hold you accountable. Faith and I were talking about this on the way here that I believe the generation that raised my generation, that a lot of them by and large didn't cause their children to realize actions have consequences. And then they grew up and made it worse with their kids. To where that not only do actions for their kids not have consequences, but they're entitled to everything good and nothing bad should ever happen to them. And it's not the kid's fault. 
They didn't do that. They grew up under the circumstances that they have. But I can tell you this, ultimately every action has a consequence. Whether it be in this life or the next. All of those actions or inaction, they have consequences. I've taken students before that uh, you know are often the the ring leader of issues and trouble that happen, and I pulled them aside and I said, "These other kids follow you. Don't lead them wrong. Don't lead them astray. Some it's really worked with that they've become a force for good uh, and to try to use peer pressure in a positive way. Uh, and that's why that God's judgment was so harsh on Saul uh, was because they were looking to Saul as a leader. Uh, and if Saul had said no. You kill Agag and you kill everything. That's exactly what they would have done. But when they looked to the top and he said, you know what, I think it's alright. That they sinned. And it was Saul who was given the command. It was his command to carry out and he didn't carry it out. And I can tell you once again, in the military, if you're given a command and you don't carry it out, you don't get to command anymore. You'll be lucky if you don't do prison time. And you see, when God puts a responsibility on you, when He gives you a talent, when He gives you something, a blessing of some kind, and you misuse it, that's like a slap in the face of the Most High God. When that we're given this life, what do we do with it? When we're given all of the blessings that we have, what are we doing with it? Uh, are, are we just consuming it upon our own lust? Uh, or are we looking around saying, God, all that I have is thine. Uh, because this man Samuel, uh, if you return back to the very beginning of this book, uh, you'll find that his mother Hannah, uh, she prayed a prayer. And she said, God, give me a man child. Uh, and if you do, I'll give him back to you. Uh, and Samuel was called at a very young age. Uh, uh, and he was called by God and raised up. Uh, became the last prophet and the first judge. And he was blessed of God. But a lot of times, when we're given a blessing, we better not misuse it. We better not mishandle it. And the parable of the talents tells us what happens if we do that. You know, that the one who had the one talent, and he looked around and he said, I was afraid to do anything with it. So I just hid it away. I did nothing. And I can tell you, there's a lot of people that might look around and say, well, I didn't do nothing. I, I'm good. They'll look around and, and, and trying to have a relationship to God, they'll just be like, well, God and I, we're square. We're okay. God wants those that would worship Him in spirit and in truth. Anything short of that is not enough. Any relationship that does not put God first Best case scenario, it's a bad relationship. Worst case scenario, you're the type of person that Jesus said at the last day that they would come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many mighty wonderful works in Your name? Didn't we do all these things? And He'll look at them and say, I never knew You. Depart from Me. And I fear that, that some people, some people in this world, if they're not careful, they're going to go to hell from the church pew. And Satan's just as content to send somebody to hell from the church pew as he is from the gutter. Makes no never mind to him. And Saul, well, what happened to Saul? He refused to obey God. He disobeyed God in that instance. And he didn't put God first, and the judgment was harsh. 
Because when Samuel begins to talk to Saul, and I'll summarize it for you, he says, God told me to tell you that He was going to establish your kingdom forever. If you'd have just listened to Him. He'd have made sure that there was always a son of Saul to be upon the throne. He said, but now God has taken the kingdom from you. Jonathan will not sit on your throne. He said, and he's given it to your kinsman. A man after God's own heart. And at this time, he was just a boy. David was just a a young lad. But God raised him up. And he would have done that for Saul. And all Saul had to do was just put God first. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But when he spared Agag, his pride went before God. And we know that a prideful look and a haughty spirit, they go before a fall. And he looked around, and when he tried to justify himself to Samuel, he said, I feared the people. And maybe he did. Maybe he thought the people would get upset with him if they didn't do that. But who is it better to fear, God or man? Put God first even when it's scary. Put God first, even when it's not convenient. Put God first, no matter what, and make that a conscious choice. That whenever you have any decision laid out before you, consult the Most High and say, God, I don't want to make a move without you. I know my heart won't keep beating unless you tell it to. I know that I can't make it another day in this life without your help. You put Him first, And I can't say that everything will go right for you, but I can tell you this. Every fight that you fight, God will make sure you win and you survive. It won't be easy. You'll have to fight. The wind and the rain will beat upon the house that you live in, but it will not fall because it's founded on the rock. Because in putting God first, if we look and we say, all right, I'll not have any other gods before you. You want me to tell you that probably the zenith or the best example of that in the Old Testament. I think it was uh, found just a few books hence from this one in the book of Daniel. In which that it was now Daniel and, and, and uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they, uh, they found themselves being fed at the king's table and it was unclean food. And they said, no, we don't want that. And their lives were in peril. But at the end of it, where they hearkened to the voice of God, and didn't eat, said that they were in better shape than everybody else. You may say, well, that's pretty good, Brother Jeremiah. Oh no, that's just the beginning. That at another point, we find that Nebuchadnezzar, that great king, the king that was considered the head of gold in that statue that he dreamed about, and Daniel interpreted his dream, it said that he set up a graven image in the plain of Dura. And said, now, here's the decree. Thus saith Nebuchadnezzar, He said, when you hear the music, and it goes over the list several times in the book of Daniel, rehashes it, the psaltery and the dulcimer and the sackbut and all these things. When they start playing, you bow down and you pay worship and obeisance to that statue in the plain of Dura. And for some reason, Daniel wasn't there. We don't know why. But Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which were their Babylonian names, they looked at each other and they said, Thus saith Nebuchadnezzar that we got to bow down, but thus saith the Lord God, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And they didn't bow down. You may say, Well, I guess everything turned out alright for them because God was in their corner. Because Nebuchadnezzar said, If you don't bow down, I'm going to kill you. 
and throw you in a fiery furnace. And they didn't bow down. They brought them before him. He pointed his finger right in their face and said, look, I'm going to give you a second chance because you guys, I think, I think you're good wise men for me. He said, if it happens again and you bow down, everything's all right. You'll be okay. And they looked at him and they said, we don't even have to consult or huddle up. We will not bow down. You can play the music all you want. We will not worship your God. Won't do it. They made a conscious choice to put God first. And where did it land them? In the midst of a fiery furnace. But if you know the story, you'll know that that's not where their story ends. That when they go in, it says the furnace was heated seven times hotter. They were bound by the strongest men in the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar left no room for error. They weren't getting out of this. The only way for them to get out of it, he looked at him and said, Who can save you from my hand? Who is strong enough to rescue you from me? And Nebuchadnezzar was about to find out. He had him bound. He had it so hot that the men that throwed him in, it killed them. And the three of them went in right in the midst of the fire and it says that Nebuchadnezzar jumps up and looks and he sees them walking around in there no longer bound but loose and set free because that fire heated seven times was the holy fire of the Most High God. And then he looked and he said there's a fourth man in the fire and that man looks like the Son of God. And it is that sometimes you'll meet Christ in the fire because you chose to put God first. If you really want to know Christ in a close walk, you set up yourself and determine in your own heart to put God first. Now, did that mean that Daniel and him never wound up in trouble again? No. There was plenty more things that happened that we don't have time to talk about. Uh, uh, but for homework, if you want to, read the book of Daniel. And you'll find out all these things. Or read the Old Testament. You'll find lots of situations uh, that summed up in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, in which it was that somebody put God first. Uh, in faith believing, uh, they put Him first. Uh, and because of that, they were delivered. Some, though, not in this life. Hebrews says that. Hebrews doesn't just talk about all the ones that went into the fiery furnace and came out or used a lion as a pillow uh, or or, or survived the flood or anything like that because he said some of them died. Some of them were killed for it. And they said, of whom the world is not worthy. But they all died in hope and in faith in God. They put Him first. And I can tell you the greatest words that we'll ever hear, that we'll ever hear, is well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in. You know that Paul, when he's telling Timothy that, he knows it's not going to be long before he leaves this world and he tells him, I'm ready to be offered. I'm ready for my life to come to an end. I have little doubt that maybe right before the axe fell on Paul and they beheaded him because it holds, it says that he outdistanced the executioner to the chopping block. And he rushed to it. He didn't walk slow and didn't hesitate. Because he was the same guy that said to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. That maybe right before that that crossed through his flesh and brought this frail, beat up, snake bit, shipwrecked, stone body that they tried to destroy countless times. That right before the axe fell, maybe he said, praise the Lord. And that was his last breath. 
He went out of this world praising the Most High God. He put Him first. He said, I'm going to set myself aside. My desires, my wants. Everything that the world has to offer, I'm going to set it aside and I'm going to put God first. And how does a person get to that point? Well, I can tell you, they don't get to that point standing on their feet, but rather down on their knees. They don't get to that point by looking at the things of the world, but by studying the Word of God. They don't accidentally put God first. It has to be willful. And all the people that you read about, all the heroes of faith, ultimately it comes down to that first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus didn't hesitate. He told him, he said, the greatest commandment is hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy mind, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. And then he said, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I can tell you this. If you obey that first commandment, and you put God first, all the others will be a whole lot easier. I can't say you'll live perfect, but you'll get a lot closer than you would ever be without it. Because you think about it, maybe we don't steal. And maybe we don't lie. Maybe we're diligent about that. We're not an adulterer. We're not a murderer. Uh, we, We don't covet things. We've really just beat our body into submission. But we don't put God first. All those other things are pointless without putting God first. But putting God first will make you able to better do the others. And I can tell you this, you don't, the Ten Commandments is not a list that you run around daily and check it off. But it is something that you need to look around and say, there's something I need to work on. I can tell you as a teacher, I can't tell you how often that I tell my students, look, the answers that you got wrong are the ones that you can learn the most from. Because everything you get right, when you get it right, it doesn't teach you anything. You should seek out where you're weak. You should look for where you're wrong. And then fix it. And work on it. And do the work. But work is a four-letter word to most people. People don't want to work on anything. They don't want to finish anything. We live in a day and a time where we're telling people to come to the Lord and work for Him and suffer for Him and things will be better on the other side. And nowadays, you can't even get anybody to work for a paycheck. And them offering more money now than they've ever offered people for the jobs. I can tell you this, church, our job is, our work is definitely cut out for us to try to get them to come in. But that doesn't mean God can't or won't. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And tell you how often I've heard people say, well, it's just a sign of the times, Brother Jeremiah. And in that, it's kind of a sign, oh, well, what are you going to do? Rather than saying, we've got, to, we've got to figure something out. We've got to compel them to come in. Reason with them. Suffer long with them. Do whatever it takes. And in seeking to put God first, He'll tell you exactly what you need to know to win that one. If there's somebody you really want to win, how often have you been praying and saying, God, let me win this soul. Let me shepherd this person in. Let me bring in somebody, Lord, that uh, will really just go to work for you. That maybe will bring about another great awakening in the Word of God. Are we praying for that? Are we seeking for that daily? Or are we just looking around saying, it's just the way it is. It's just a sign of the times. You know, revival doesn't happen by accident. People don't get saved by accident. It takes 
willful action on someone's part to get the work done. Work often doesn't accidentally get done. Now I can tell you this, if you want to do work, you better put God first. Let's all stand.